Welcome to the Bag Drop, Untold Stories in Golf. Professor, good morning. Matthew, great to see you. Good to see you, sir. How's your day going? What's going on? It's another rainy day. We cannot escape the rain this spring. It's just every, I feel so bad for all of our superintendents down here. Just every, I think it's every Wednesday, Thursday, indoor Friday, we get some level of a half inch, inch, inch and a half of rain. We, uh, I was chatting with the superintendent actually that he was show, showing the numbers like Georgia, central Georgia is, is uh, on the verge of rainforest conditions. Like in terms of the quantity of rain that's been going up, it's, it's a real trend line of rain has increased in central Georgia for like the last five years. Yeah, this there's actually a, a whatever you want to call it, climate change, weather change, what, whatever term you want to give it. Georgia's in a really good place in terms of global warming because we actually won't get warmer in temperatures. We're basically hitting a ceiling where we'll just get more rain. I mean, that's annoying, but we will avoid like our temperatures won't just keep spiking. We're just going to become more of a rainforest type of uh, climate with just we'll just have more rain. We'll become the next Florida. <laughs> Hopefully, just in in uh, rain and not other other categories. Because yeah. I, I tend to like the culture of Georgia. Yeah, it's uh, it's all happening. Any factoid for for the listener today? Oh yeah, just a small one. Just a small one today. Um, I was reading last night. So, in the nineteen seventies, what do you think the average male weight was? I'll put you on the spot. Nineteen seventy. I'll go adult hundred. Adult with any age? You gonna give me an age? Yeah, this is just a big average. I mean. Take it or leave it for if it's meaningful. 165 pounds. Okay, now let's go today, like in the last five years, what average adult male weigh? Um, I'll add 10 pounds, 175 pounds. All right, your first guess was decent. 173 pounds uh, in the 70s. Okay. 200 pounds today. What? Yeah, so a 27-pound average increase. Um are you calling our listeners fat? Is that I'm, you just I, want to insult I, I, people today? Is I, that you pretty- said it, not me. You're the <laughs> one that talks about um, uh, fat bellies and walking and all that. So all that is to say, it's true. We need to, we need to be better. We need to we need to watch the uh, abundance that we have and carry our bags right. Get your get your zone two cardio four days a week if you can, forty five minutes. Yep, I love that was, it. That uh, was not, a large, now you're that was a large number. Now you climbed my hill. Yeah, just more people walking. I mean, I uh, uh, it's funny. I played on on Monday this past week. Weather finally broke in Ohio, and I, it's it's fascinating. This is the Muni I grew up on, right? Slapping my bag over my shoulder, uh, a little place called Good Park in in Akron, Ohio, and. <laughs> I look like everyone looked at me like I was an alien walking, carrying my bag. And literally, of all that, we were the first one of the first times there was a frost delay as to be expected this time of year, and we got pushed back. And everyone's standing, you know, waiting to to get that line started. Everybody was there on time for their tea time. We got pushed back what forty five minutes or so, and I'm the only, literally, only guy with a bag on my back. And and it was almost like people. One guy asked me like, "Where's your cart?" I'm not taking a cart. I'm walking, man. It's it's eighteen holes. It's not that strenuous. Like, yeah, it close, drives me nuts, man. Close green to tea proximity at Good Park, too. That's not, a big, yeah, that's not a big walk at it all. It never added tees, man. No, it's still the same, like, 1930s track it, it was. So, anywho, anywho, get out there, walk, lose some weight. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going I'm going Sunday, 8 a.m. First off, I'm walking. I can't wait. And right now, I'm just, right now, I'm just a single ball. So, I'm going to get around in about, hopefully, two hours, 15 minutes. And two, all those buggies behind me will be wondering what Good. I'm doing walking. But that's just fine. And I'll be, I'm not going to lie, I was sore. 
because I, you know, it's the winter. I haven't been walking. I haven't been exercising much that lately this time. And I was sore, but I felt great afterwards. You know, right. it's like you did something. You achieved it. Uh, the stats don't lie, though. 200 pounds. 200 pounds. That's, uh, yeah. we're, we got to get that down. Uh, speaking of stats, Ooh. we got, uh, how you like that for a transition? Ooh, that, we was, got that was very, smooth. You're, you're getting good at this. We got a very special guest. I'm a little intimidated by today's episode. I'm always you know, insecure about my intelligence with you on the show, but now it's really, my inadequacy is like at an all-time high. But uh, uh, Sean Martin's joining us on the show today. And I'm, I'm, I know we're both have been trying to chase this guy down for kind of the whole season. And he's just been so damn busy that- we're uh, we're finally getting them. So I feel I feel like we're landing a whale today. Um, before we get there, though, we got a new sponsor of the pod. <laughs> he's coming from outside of the green room. He's he's already jumping. He's eager too. This is great. Uh, before we get to our very special guest, we got a special a new sponsor of the podcast, uh-huh. Kevin. Who do we got? I, I'm new, clueless. I'm, the, I'm clueless on this actually. For all of new listeners. old, I don't know. I new don't know. is old. Old is new. Any any hints? Any guesses? Old. No. New Club Golf Society. New Club is still accepting applications for the 2023 golf season, Kevin. Even if you join in July, you'll get a full 12 months of access to the community and the mobile app, local tee times in our local chapters of Chicago, Atlanta, tournaments throughout the year, including our full field events like the New Club Charity Classic happening at Rivermont Golf Club. Supporting youth on Course Georgia, uh, or the Stinger member guests at Elgin Country Club, one of my favorite hidden gems of Chicago. Plus, what I like to call our limited frill events. We got a lot more of these kind of down and dirty, no tea gifts, no food, no swag, just good old fashioned golf competitions happening, like our monthly medal stroke play events, our yep. match play captains matches, our Sunday morning four ball leagues, and finally, you can't talk about New Club without the fixtures. We have our annual fixtures list. It's bucket list trips to the world's most enjoyable golf courses. Domestically, there are four, the spring meeting, the summer medal, the fall founders cup, the winter meeting, and internationally there too. The international, that was a clever name. And the pilgrimage, the annual pilgrimage to the home of golf in St. Andrews. All that along with a community of avid, passionate, bona fide golfers to play this beautiful game with. Thank you to the team at New Club for sponsoring this podcast. I'll say this as much as I, I love the no frills events, you're right? Because that's the Scottish tradition, right? The events right. like you don't need tea gifts and all that. You're just playing a competition. Maybe there's a little trophy to pass around, and that's why we tee it up. I gotta say the fixtures, oof, they're good. I just signed up for Landman for the uh, summer medal just a couple days ago. You know, of course, I picked a spring meeting and Landman to go to. <laughs> Cannot wait to get yeah. out there for a couple days and just have that golf course with just. You know, our group on there and just having a blast. Data don't lie, too. Getting back to data, data don't lie. When you make it to a fixture, you are pretty much a new club member for for life. People really, really enjoy those. And, and our team works their asses off to make those truly special. So, yeah, join up for one of the fixtures once you join New Club. You got to apply. Applications open at newclub.golf. Kevin, let's get to our special guest, man. He's here. Yeah. He's I called him a whale. He, I feel like he is. He was in the, the, in the media space, in the golf media space, he definitely is. The hardest to schedule all year. Everybody else scheduling, but no, him, Friday, Thursday, Friday, Thursday. What are we doing? I don't know. He's just always crunching numbers, always telling stories. Love Sh- listening to my other podcasts, and we finally get them. Sean Martin, this is really a treat. Welcome to The Backdrop. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the flexibility. I know it was it was difficult uh, 
Harbor Town this week. It's always been on my must visit list. I've never actually been, uh, and I've always wanted to go badly. Almost made the drive up last minute, but I stuck to my commitment after a little bit of waffling on dates. But I'm I'm happy to be here. I feel bad for your booking agent. That's I mean, you got to pay them more. It's just a tough duty. Yeah, that comes down to the professor. Uh, we'll we'll throw something his way. Some uh, <laughs> tropicalia, I think, is a compensation that he'll accept. Now you're just being selfish because you're just going to buy some for yourself. This, this is all I know. That's for those that don't know, Creature Comforts Downtown Athens Brewery makes one of the best IPAs in the nation. I think Sean would agree with that. It makes one of the best in the nation. Uh, it is Tropicalia. If you ever watch, I think it's Guardians of the Galaxy. Maybe that one, um, or actually one of the Avengers. Um, Chris Helmsworth is wearing their shirt. So try it if you haven't had it. Free ad for Creature Comforts. Maybe a new um, sponsor. Sean, I'm just going to springboard Sean right there on, you know, you said you, have, you haven't been to Harbor Town. Pick one other tour event. If you got to go to one event, can't be a major. You know, you've, you've covered them all. You've been to several of them. Where are you going? What's, you know, give us your rundown of like, what are the tour events people should pay attention to and go to? Uh, for my list personally, probably would be Kapalua. I've not been to Kapalua in a professional capacity. Uh, we went when I was in high school once. Um, and I had a, a friend actually whose brother was an assistant pro, so was able to play for a severely discounted rate, thankfully. Um, but that one, obviously, that one's special, I think, for a lot of people. You know, the beginning of the year uh, is so huge. It's funny. Golf is is funny in that way that really the beginning of the year, I feel like, is kind of the, the hot season for as, as far as from a competitive standpoint, because so many people are indoors. And also the venues are great on the West Coast. Um, you know, the ocean views, you can't beat them, especially if you're snowed in. And then you just throw it in the summer, people are actually out playing golf. And so it's it's harder to watch a golf tournament. So golf's kind of funny in that way. But And, and being a California guy, uh, it's always nice to get back out there. Um, I live in Florida now. I heard all the things you said about the state uh, in the intro. Uh, we won't go there. But um, yeah, I think the, the West Coast, beginning of the year, the location of the venues is always special for me. I mean, is there anything better than watching primetime Kapalua? And beginning of was the beginning of January. Like, I you know I go through years. I definitely don't watch a lot of tour golf. You know, I shouldn't say that in front of our our esteemed guests here. There are definitely years that I go that I'm like ah, I'm just not that interested. But Kapalua always like that's seven o'clock. Me and the wife are on the couch watching those views and watching you know Patrick Cantley complain about his uh, his pampered uh, players. Uh, just such a such a great watch. Definitely. Don't worry, even- John. I, I I mooched Kevin's uh, the professor's. PJ Tour live account for like, I don't know, a decade. So I know he's a supporter. He pays his dues. He watches more than he lets on. Yeah. I do, I do. All right, Sean, let's we could we don't want to talk about tour golf this whole episode. So I want to rewind a little bit back to your beginning, something that I'm very passionate about too, and I know Matt as well. You know, my understanding is right, you got your your start at the college and junior golf scene, um, in terms of your professional life. Tell us a little bit about that start. Like where'd you start? And then I I know but both Matt and I probably got more questions than we can get through just relative to that junior golf scene and, and the college golf scene. Sure. I mean, really, it goes back to kind of my start in the game. Uh, I started working in a pro shop like the moment I turned 16. Uh, you had to be 16 years old. You had to be able to drive the carts. So I had my license. And, um, you know, I kind of got started late in the game at, by some standards. At like 11 years old, we moved across the country to California, kind of middle of sixth grade. And, um only a couple months before summer and the people I met kind of my, my mom asked them, Hey, what do kids do here for, you know, around summertime? 
And the thing, one of the big things that, that their kids did was this junior golf program at Westlake Golf Course, uh, which now is somewhat famous as the home of George Genkis. Um, and then I think Matthew Wolf, obviously, and, and a few guys like that. Daniel Kang holds the course record. Um, but back then, I mean, it's a 5,000-yard golf course. Um, and the junior program was like 100 bucks, and you got group lessons. Um, you got you had to pass a rules and etiquette test and then you got a card for $6 greens fees all year. And so I just kind of fell in love with it right away. And eventually, you know, wanted to play college golf. We were on a, a good high school team because we just had a bunch of guys who would just wear that place out and play together all the time and, and really other good junior rates as well. Um, and I wanted to play college golf and, you know, back in my day, let's say the internet wasn't quite, uh, what it is now. And so if you wanted to look at college golf scores, there were two sources. It was golf week magazine on a weekly basis. And this is a throwback for some people. I, I mentioned it in another pod and, and got a lot of response, but the Ping College Golf Guide. I don't know oh, if yeah. people remember this. It had like the contact info for every coach in the nation, had scores from, I think, like conference championships, regionals, and then NCAAs. And, you know, I, golf stat was maybe around. I, I don't know. I think it was. Um, but really just kept looking at the scores in golf week, seeing what teams were shooting, seeing which teams were bad enough that I could consider, you know, trying to play for. <laughs> We um, had such a similar strategy, Sean. Yeah. All right, <laughs> I was stinks. intimately familiar with those. I was like, yeah, yeah, Hofstra, they finished dead right. last. I could probably play there. There was a great one. There was a year in there that San Diego State wore metal spikes uh, in a postseason event when soft spikes were coming on. And, and wearing soft spikes, I guess, was a local rule for the event. And so every player got um, penalized. Like, I mean, it was. I think it was 36 shots. It was like two shots a hole. <laughs> And so their scores were in the mid-90s. And so there was a note at the bottom of the scores, like players penalized for wearing metal spikes or whatever, just so you didn't think that like San Diego State was shooting, you know, 95s at the WAC championship or wherever it was. Uh, but anyway, so I was looking at Golf Week all that time. And, and I wanted to be a writer. My dad was in publishing. We had books always around. My parents were big on reading and, and words and just... I guess we were people of letters, if you will. Um, and so I wanted to be a writer, wanted to be a sports writer, and just knew that golf would have less kind of competition. Everyone wants to be a baseball writer, basketball, football. And I just loved golf, uh, loved reading Golf Week. And so I really, in high school, remember like Golf Week was the place that I wanted to work. And so really bugged them throughout college for internships and et cetera. Nothing really ever worked out timing wise, but eventually a job opened up and Beth Ann Nichols, who's still with them covering the LPGA, um, she reached out and said, Hey, we have a job opening and we're really just reaching out to people who've expressed interest to kind of narrow our field of applicants and, you know, would love for you to apply. And, um, it worked out that way. And, um, they made fun of me. They, you know, said at least that they made fun of me like behind my back with all the emails I sent, but obviously it worked out. So I always encourage people to, you know, put yourself out there and send emails to places you want to work. Um, and when you start at golf week, you kind of started as an assistant editor, uh, which was, you were putting together the scoreboard section, which, you know, when it was a weekly magazine, that scoreboard section was pages and pages of scores from, I mean, county amateurs and local junior events and just all kinds of random little stuff. And that was your job. And then covering junior amateur and college golf was kind of the start. And then you eventually, you know, worked way up to the PGA tour, but, um, Playing briefly in college, uh, always kind of had a passion for it. Um, it was a great opportunity to meet a lot of players before they hit it big. Um, back when they really wanted to talk to the media, it was a big deal to get interviewed by Golf Week. So, helped develop relationships that still pay off today. 
Um, but, you know, I still love delving into the college game, especially with PJ Tour University has kind of allowed us to do it a little bit more, which has been a lot of fun for me. But yeah, I always had a, a soft spot for that part of the game and always like trying to identify who's next and who's doing incredible things um, in golf because that is such a big part of the game too. We love seeing like who's the next big thing, um, who's the next prospect, who's the next kind of it person. So it's definitely a fun part of my job. I love that part of, of reading what you write too, Sean. It, it like comes across. I know you cover the big dogs uh, regularly, but it seems like you you've you've kept that passion to to root for the underdog and kind of make sure their stories are being told out there as well. I think so. I went to a small school, Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, um, so I think maybe that's part of it. I've always kind of been a contrarian, I think, by nature. So I kind of like covering the stuff that other people aren't. That's kind of the genesis of my Hideki Matsuyama um, coverage as well. Um, so yeah, that's always been fun. It, it's hard though. Cause we, I've joked with someone even recently, we were talking about obviously Gordon Sargent, so much hype went into, um, the run up to the masters. And then obviously he missed the cut. Um, and Sam Bennett kind of stole the show. Um, and even had people DFS people in my mentions, like, thanks, you know, I lost all this money cause I put Gordon Sargent, in my lineup because of your articles, which I, you know, that's not why I write them. That's, you know, you're responsible for what you do with your money. Um, but it's hard because we we blow these, sometimes we blow these people up, you know, set these unrealistic expectations for them, and then a, year, a few years later we write, you know, why didn't so and so live up to our expectations? And it's like, well, maybe it's because we were unrealistic. But we kind of set, we set this narrative, this cycle with young players of like we we build them up, and then we ask the questions of why they're not living up to it, and then I don't know. It's just it's funny. So you have to be careful with telling someone's story without not overly predicting. I hate predictions. It's such a funny game that you really can't. Um, predict accurately. So I try to stay away from that as much as possible. I, I appreciate you ignoring my boy D, DT Davis Thompson out there, you know, making sure not to put those lofty standards well, it's, where it's funny because he's 23, you know, but he's on tour now. So he's like old news. It's, you know, when he was in college, <laughs> yeah, he was winning the Jones on. Cup by nine shots. Great, huge. You know, it's it's this huge thing. But, you know, now he's on tour. Yeah, sure. He's challenging John Rom down the stretch. But once you reach tour, you know, you've made it. And so I've lost interest. Not really, but um, he's, on to the next. He's all hot, grown up now. Let's go hot, back hot to those, kind of, those golf week years. You know, I always remember like a, a standing memory for me in, in golf is we played in Wake Forest event one year. And I just remember walking down the range. Everybody's swing looks the same, right? Everybody, the ball looks good, but there's one sound, right? Like one sound that stuck with me. And I'm walking down, I'm like, man, that just sounds different. I get down there and the name on the bag is Bill Haas. And that was sort of my moment in golf. It was like, okay, pro golf's not in my future because my ball's never sounded like that and it's never going to sound like that. Like going back to those golf week days, do you, what, have any memories stuck with you of just people? It could be a golf shot or just a person or an interview, you know, that stuck with you all this time and be like, wow, that was, that was different. That was someone that I just knew right away, like they were different. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I always remember that with Nick Watney. Uh, he went to Fresno State, so we played in a tournament with him, and um, he was kind of the same thing. But I think I remember it with Jordan Spieth. Um, really just remember, he always did seem to have a knack for getting it in the hole. Um, I remember watching him play the final round of the second Byron Nelson he played in when he was 17, and I just remember this... You know, he, I think he'd laid it up under a tree on a par five and hit this wedge shot that like went under the branches, but landed and stopped quickly and made birdie. And it always just kind of felt that way with Spieth. Um, I also loved at the your beloved Jones Cup. Um, he 
three-putted the last hole to fall into a playoff with John Peterson. And then I want to say on the first playoff hole, he hit it in the water and he was incensed. And he just goes, I thought I was old enough to stop making these stupid mistakes. And it's like, buddy, you're 17 years old. You haven't even started college yet. But he was just, those were the standards he had set for himself. And so I think Spieth stands out in that way a lot. Wow, that's cool. That's one that has hit, right? Yeah. The, you know, that he's obviously had a, a wonderful career. And if he disappeared today, like he'd still go down as having a great PGA Tour career. Um, There's, uh, when we talk to junior golf, I also think about covering junior golf. You must have seen some interesting parental experiences, Sean. So I wondered if there was ever a, like, a parent, do you got any good parent stories? I don't, you know, the nice thing was you were covering AJGA, which they had no caddies. Guys just carried their own bags. Mm. And then the US Junior, I think you still can't have an immediate family member on the bag. Um, and so, you know, I go now with my six-year-old to the local Muni and we hit balls and stuff. And there's US kids tournaments and like parents caddying and stuff. And like, I remember when I was a kid that like my parents would just drop me off at the course and leave me for hours. And I'd hop on a payphone and call them to come get me. And it's funny now because I don't know if I would do the same thing like with my kids when they hit that age. But um, luckily, you didn't have quite the like parental involvement as far as caddying. So parents were at least, you know, outside the ropes. And and honestly, I think a lot of kids even traveled on their own to those events. So I don't remember a ton of like crazy parent involvement. I, w- I wish I had a better story for you. That's okay. I remember uh, I'll share one instead. I remember one. Uh, it wasn't AJGA. I think it was like IJGT or something like that, or IJGA maybe. It was one of the competitors. It was more off-season events. But anyways, I remember one in Virginia where a dad, like there was water jugs everywhere, right? And there was one water jug that was out. And, and like literally you would just have to wait maybe a hole or two to fill out a water jug. And it wasn't even that hot. Like <laughs> it was a 36-hole day, but it wasn't that hot. And we're in the second night. And this dad, because this one water jug was empty, he took it. And he threw it in the middle of the tee box and he started screaming. There was no, you know, officials around. They're all up at the clubhouse, but he's like waiting for someone to address him. It it was awkward. It was just really, I wonder how his son's doing, you know, like maybe not the approach you want. And those water jugs were always filled by a hose. So you weren't missing out (laughs) on much. Yeah. They're, they're known as one of the dirtiest things literally that you come across in your life. Like they're the amount of bacteria in them is as high as a toilet, I guess. It's just absolutely terrible um sean you're really passionate about i I don't think a lot of people know this about the golf swing um and golf swing instruction where i want to dive into that for a little bit um where let's start with where that where's that come from like why why do you have that interest what what, what's that stem from yeah i think a big thing was being at westlake um so it was the only night lit range in the area so it's a little bit north of los angeles And, you know, Southern California and LA, especially outside of the private clubs, really the the golf landscape is pretty tough. Um, Obviously, Southern California has developed some great players and it has some great venues like Riviera and LACC, but public courses are, it's kind of tough. And so uh, Westlake had a nightlit range and they always made sure to kind of keep the mats in good shape and replace them regularly and keep the balls in good shape. So you would attract these like just diehards and sickos that would just spend, you know, there's only place you could hit balls at, I think it was closed at maybe 10 PM. So if you want to hit balls at night, it's the only place to go. And it would attract people, um, 
like Chris Zambri, who uh, he's now an assistant coach at Pepperdine. He was a longtime head coach mm-hmm. at USC, played on the, I think it was the Nike tour back then and almost got his card a couple times. Like he was out there. Um, when I was working in the cart barn, Chris Como, uh, who coached Tiger and Bryson and now Jason Day, he was working in the in the pro shop. And so, I mean, we were like his early test cases. Um, and it's funny cause I still remember him talking about flattening the shaft. And if you watch Jason day, he's still doing this like hand motion that, I mean, Chris was doing like when we were in high school 20 years ago. Um, and, but we would go to a Barnes and Noble a couple miles away and like read the Ledbetter books and McLean and all this stuff. And, um, I think it was probably a friendship with Chris a little bit too. He was obsessed with the golf swing from the start. Like he didn't really care about scoring. He just cared about the swing. Um, and I think too, because he came to it later, like he was, I want to say in junior college when he did. So he was like, I'm not going to be a competitive player. It's just, that's too late for that, but I can be an instructor. And he wanted to be an instructor like right away. He always knew that's what he wanted to do. And I think that was a big part of it was just being around it and being around people who um, were really into the swing. And then especially now, you know, I'm not, I don't play, I barely play any golf, let alone competitive golf. Um, It's always just been kind of like this mystery and, even Mark Brody was in an article and I, I texted him about it, but you know, he talked about like, he felt like taking lessons was cheating. Like you should figure it out yourself. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, figuring out the swing has always been almost more appealing to me than trying to score, which is like an awful mindset for competitive golf, obviously. Um, but I've always just had more, I've been more entertained by like tinkering and messing around. The problem is like doing that mid round, uh, which is still a habit of mine, but that's always been the bigger appeal to me than, than shooting a number. I think the uh, going back to Westlake real quick. I mean, it, I, it's the epicenter of the modern golf swing. I mean, was, was there any George Gankus overlap Gank- with you? Uh, Gankus was like still trying to play. I think he was playing the golden state tour. I think he Mondayed for a couple, I think maybe nationwide Nike events. Uh, now the corn Ferry tour, I think he's playing maybe even some Canada, but like he was kind of around, he was caddying at Sherwood. Um, and then he was giving some lessons over there. And I think maybe working with Como on his own swing, but um, yeah, I mean, it really is. It's crazy for a, a 5,000 yard golf course. That is just, um, it's right off the freeway too. So, I mean, even it was easy to get to, if you didn't live nearby, that was part of it. Um, but it just for, it definitely, I always say it punches way above its weight. Cause it's this 5,000 yard, nothing golf course that has, you have all kinds of random people that have gone through there. Dave Stockton was there. It was like, a um, one of its early, like I think playing professionals and, and his son, Dave Stockton jr. We were DMing once after I wrote a story about Westlake and he talked about riding his bike over there, um, and hitting balls and stuff. And I, I he played on tour as well. So you'd have a lot of random, yeah, it's a very random That's, place. I, I bet that just to be a fly on the wall and all the conversations you guys were having around, like you said, tinkering in the golf swing, that's uh, that's really cool. It was a surprise to me, Sean, that um, Kevin mentioned that this was kind of a uh, you know sub level of interest for you of, of diving into the golf swing because I mean, obviously, I, I read a lot of what you write, and it, 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 something started to make a little bit more sense knowing that that you have this passion for it. Um, I wanted to ask you what decades you feel the swing was like, cause I, I, there's this trend line, right. Of, of coaches and, and the way that we approach the golf swing that I think everyone had a little different flair to it. But if you look at decades, a lot of them followed a, a similar pattern in, in certain decades. Is there one that jumps out to you or like, 
that was it. That was our, that was the golden age of the golf swing. Well, it really is. If you look at, um, I know Kevin will remember this, but a couple of years ago, Keith Cutton came out with a book on architecture and it discussed how cultural trends impacted architecture. And you can mm-hmm. really kind of say the same about the golf swing. Um, you know, obviously the transition to steel shafts uh, had a big impact on the swing. Um, but then, you know, when you get into like the later parts of the 20th century um, and you look at kind of the computer age when computers are starting to become a thing, then people are looking at, okay, we can turn like the human into a golfing robot. And that's where kind of the golfing machine comes along. And you have that. And then so you get into kind of method teaching, which obviously turned out to probably do more harm than good. Um, but then we've kind of hit this area now with TrackMan that we don't need to hit positions. It's more just kind of producing numbers and producing ball flights. And so caring less about how it looks and just caring about what it produces an impact, which launch monitors allow us to do because really, you know, impact was like this black box. You don't know what's happening. Um, and so now though, I feel like as we've gotten, technology has been around longer, I guess, and maybe we can see this in some parts of our own lives. Um, you learn how to use technology better. You realize that technology can be as much a, a help as a hindrance. So, you know, the video camera comes along and, um, so we're obsessed with how things look because now we can get it on camera, but these are still, they have very slow shutter speeds. I even remember Chris Como talking about at Westlake, like some of the errors that we would get into because we're looking at a three dimensional action in two dimensions. Mm -hmm. Um, But now, you know, we're less, yeah, we're just less technical. I feel like you see, you know, like a Matthew Wolf or you see um, just such a wide array of golf swings and much less concern over um, how it looks. And then even you see a lot more guys nowadays who stick with the same instructor from when they were a child. And I think that's two things. I think one, it's the amount of information out there. It's just there's so many more, this is bad phrasing, but more better coaches. Just, you know, you can be a coach in the middle of nowhere, let's say Iowa, but you can get on Instagram and you can learn stuff there. You can do TPI seminars online. You can do all sorts of things. So now like the club, the coach at your local course is so much better than he probably was 20 years ago. Um, And then you also just have human performance involved now too. So it's not so much about necessarily the golf swing as much as just overall helping you perform, whether that be mentally, emotionally, physically as part of that also. But it's more holistic, I think, than it was before, where before it's like, let's just hit these positions, all right? Like, you know, let's do the the lead better drills from the book where, you know, let's cock the wrist early. Let's get it set. Let's get it on plane. Like that was the big concern. Now it's a much more holistic um, look at, at human performance and not just like your swing plane and your wrist angles and, and that sort of stuff. But there is a cool through line too. When you look at it, like there's a guy um, and Chambly has written about this, but you have a guy in Los Angeles named Alex Morrison who like he did the first swing overhaul with Henry Picard. Like you can find old stories. Like Henry Picard was like the first guy to like go off tour to rebuild his swing. Like he just disappeared for a few months to go work with Alex Morrison. He comes back, he wins the masters. Well then Henry Picard, uh, he gave Sam Sneed the driver that Sneed used for like decades on tour. Cause it just, obviously back then you weren't getting custom fit for equipment you'd like pull it out of the bin and be like, Oh, this one feels good. And I want to say it was a heavier driver. I forget the exact specs, but it was, the driver that like helped Sneed fight the hook. And then Henry Picard was the one that told Hogan to uh, weaken his grip 
um, to hit the fade and stop hitting that nasty hook that would kill him at, at crucial times. And like, turns out that Ben Hogan traveled um, the tour with Jack Grout, and Jack Grout goes to Scioto and becomes Jack Nicholas's teacher. And you just have like this through line of you can just kind of see the the theories around the swing kind of develop um, up into the modern day. You brought up um, method teaching. Explain what that means. You know, that's a, a thing. Like, I'm familiar being an educator in method teaching, but I don't think everybody understands what what you mean by that. Yeah, you can you can say Matt doesn't that. understand what you mean by that. Matt does not <laughs> understand what method. So, I mean, I graduated high school in 2000. So, you know, a lot of this at Westlake that we were talking about was like late 90s. And back then, it's the like, which we still have tips in golf magazines, but it's the tips in the magazines. And then it's like the books by like the big guys of like Ledbetter, McLean, et cetera. And it's it's just trying to make everyone look the same. So trying to fit everyone into the same box, um, one way of doing things instead of, you know, I think now we are much more able to, you know, personalize the swing because we understand more about how people work and move. I think a great illustration of that is like Max Homo with Mark Blackburn. It's like Max grew up like everyone else, like a tiger guy. And so he really wanted to get his hands high and he wanted to hit these high, just, you know, launching long irons that land softly. And so he was really trying hard to get his hands high and it sent his game into the dumps. And so he went in fall of 2020 to go see Mark Blackburn and the first thing they do is not hit balls. They go to like the gym in the Marriott um, at in Westchester after Max missed the cut at the U.S. Open at Wingfoot. And they go through a series of tests to see how Max moves. And Mark is like, hey, you have limited shoulder mobility. You can't get your hands high. When you try to get your hands high, then you lose. Um, basically, like you get out of your posture. You have to get out of your posture to get your hands up. And so that's not going to work for you. And so you look at Max now, Max is pretty flat and he hits a low ball um, and he hits mostly a fade. But, you know, instead of in the old days, yeah, it's like, hey, let's try to swing like Tiger, try to swing, you know, like Nick Faldo or David Frost. Um, Now it's like, hey, you we can look at your body and we can tell you you can't swing that way. And so your swing is not going to look like those guys, but it's going to be better for you personally. I remember I was exactly that player where where my coach put up a video tiger and you know you had the V1 stuff it was, it was somewhat new um and this is me in college and like here's tiger here's the lines here are your lines let's get your lines to match up or here's Ernie Els all 6 foot 3 230 pounds and I was maybe 161 max in college and it's like let's hit your lines let's make sure they're exactly like Ernie's right I remember that exact that phenomenon, you know, which was obviously you, touches on both the method teaching as well as your point about what the technology at the time. It's like, oh, we have this new thing. Well, we have video for the first time that we can do and put lines down and use software. And it's like, okay, we need to make it look exactly like an impact. Your line should match perfectly with the best players ever. I mean, it's sensible, right? We look back now and it's one of those things. In hindsight, it's always easy to criticize any movement in hindsight. But at the time, it made complete sense. It's like, yeah, we have this tool that, like, if I can match up with Tiger perfectly, I'm going to be a better golfer. Yeah. And I think even with a better understanding through shot link of like variance, which I know is a big passion of Kevin's is like, we understand the imperfections of the game too. So now you have better expectation management um, for both PGA tour players when they're playing their course management. And then even like a college player of, you know um, how to play the game. You know, you can, you can get a kid thinking like a, tour player at a much younger age because now we just 
we know those secrets because in somewhere where data has revealed the secrets, um, you know, I think mm-hmm. some there can be excesses where people, you know, may read too much in the data, become too black and white or, you know, subscribe to too much of an orthodoxy and kind of lose the forest for the trees. But at the same time, um, it's easier now to realize what the best players do than it was before. So throw out your body, like, you know, that's the genetics thing, right? Like in terms of like what your body can do swing-wise. You can pick any swing for you and it's going to work and you're going to fl- be a flusher. What swing are you? What swing is Sean Martin swinging? I think I was always a Hogan guy because Hogan passed away in 97. So I was like 15 turning 16. I was really just starting to get passionate in it. And I think like I talked about computers and like turning people into golfing robots or like human iron byrons. And I think a lot of that came actually from Hogan and too also from the fact that back then the U.S. Open was the biggest tournament in the world and in the country let's say. So, and the U S open back then was the old school, narrow fairways, high rough, like hit fairways, hit greens. And Hogan, I think gave the misconception that you could perfect ball striking. And I don't know how much was myth and how much was actual fact. It's hard to tell. Um, but you had a guy who made everyone else believe that if you did it a certain way, you could master the golf swing and have complete control of your golf ball. And you had people designing games to be played to win the U.S. Open, which demanded straight driving and hitting a lot of greens. And so I think I think Hogan was always kind of the guy that I looked up to because when he passed away, you had all the kind of obituaries and just talk about the Hogan mystique and kind of his story was resurrected. He obviously had, you know, kind of gone out of the public eye after his career was over. And um, sorry, were able to edit that? Yeah, you're good. Oh, yeah, okay. you're fine. Got an editor. Okay. Um, I'll clip it though. I got to. I got to always mark these. Things. Sure. Uh, Thirty-seven. Three, two, one. And so I think Hogan. Yeah, his story was resurrected when he passed away after you know many years of kind of being outside the spotlight and just being intrigued by not only like the idea that you could perfect the golf swing and have perfect like ball control, but also just kind of that mystique of like just this hard exterior guy who dug it out of the dirt um i think that appealed to me too for a variety of reasons so i think i've always been kind of partial to hogan there's no way in the world that i could swing it like that and i don't think a lot of people could but obviously worked for him but i think do you also refuse to practice your putting you think it's frivolous and silly i think it should be uh like a half stroke you know yeah, that's, uh, that was always I, I, that's an interesting movement. Was the half stroke movement in putting that that putts should be worth half a stroke? Oh, I, I didn't even know up. that was a movement. What era was that? Uh, it started with George Thomas, actually the golf course architect. Yeah, and then Hogan was a big proponent of it, just because they felt like it was less of you know, 100%. golf is ball striking, putting is like yeah. a billiards. That's I, I love that it's, the half stroke. We're gonna put that in play. New club tournament. 100%. We will find a way to make this part of our format. And yeah, I mean, Hogan, the myth idea. I mean, we, I think I've seen enough Shell's wonderful world of golf when he's been on there. I have that video. Man, it was. And you're a contrarian. Like, you, you've, I just self identified contrarian. And who did you choose with swing? It was Hogan, right? And there's a reason for that. Like, well, his understanding and like that early understanding without technology to aid it of the golf swing and everything involved is impressive. I mean, Sean, I've read some on Hogan and I know there's some debate on like his secret and the, the real answer is probably he had multiple secrets that, that were, were 
integral to his approach to the golf swing. Do you have a favorite? Do you have one that like you know he he held on to and and you kind of use for your own game? I not for my own game, no. I mean, I do love the ones like oh, the secret was just he worked harder than everyone else, which was a, kind of a funny one. Um, actually, there was a guy who I did some reading on him this year. His name was John Schlee. He was actually runner up to Johnny Miller in the nineteen seventy three U.S. Open. Like he was the guy that fell victim to the sixty three, and he was like an astrologer and just a. I think he was in the Marines. He injured himself like in a parachuting accident. Like total just. Um, you talk about like people I've always wanted to write stories about. And and there actually is a great one from Bill Fields, who is a longtime golf historian, worked at Golf World for a while. And it's an amazing story because this guy was obsessed with mastering the golf swing. And he actually was one of the few people that Hogan like took under his wing to really disciple. And it's in part because he was this horrible ball striker who um, could putt really well. And so him and Hogan got matched up like in a practice round and they were tied after, let's say, six holes because John Schley's holding putts from, like, all over the place, like a 40-foot of her par, and, like, Hogan's just disgusted. Um, and he decides to take him under his wing, and um, it's a really interesting story of a guy who devoted his life to the golf swing. Um, eventually was forced off the tour, I think, by back injuries, started some golf clinics, and then, like, sadly ended up dying alone in a nursing home in California, but just kind of a tragic... Like, you talk about people that are devoted to golf, and... Um, that was this guy. He actually invented, do you remember the secret training aid? It was the plastic yeah. thing that um, would go on the back of your right wrist to keep the angle. Um, uh-huh. He invented that and then sold the oh, rights yeah. off. Um, but I can't remember what he said the secret was. There were a couple. I think one of them was fanning the face open on the way back so that then you could turn so hard through it that it was never going to go left because the face was so open. And so, which is kind of the start of Tame and Sneed, I think. And Nelson, like you, um, they were kind of guys that really use, I guess, rotation, I would say. Um, you know, I feel like you had Faldo was um, more handsy, kind of. You know, he's a big guy that didn't hit it that far. And then once we kind of got away from that, you kind of, it's funny because like the era of like Sean Foley type instructors, those guys, I feel like it's when you started seeing like Sneed pop up again as like a model for the golf swing and a lot of rotation, a lot of power. Um I think in part because power started becoming part of the game again. Um, but anyways, I don't know. There's a, We go all over the place with that. But I, I don't think – I think it is partly just kind of owning it and working hard. I don't I don't think I would recommend fanning the face open. I think that's the, one of the things that they say the five lessons made a nation of slicers. And I think that's definitely part of the reason. There was there's a couple uh, <laughs> of my favorite – I mean um, – the, that Hogan would turn his head slightly. Yeah. I, that's one of my favorites, like secrets that I, I've seen that apply to a bunch of different people where you get the perception, you know, how how your alignment can be off just based on how you're setting up that day. But one thing he did to kind of counteract that is he would move his head slightly to the right, being a right-hander, and kind of get that visual of, okay, there's my line, there's my line. And so I, I do that when I get lost occasionally in my alignment and it, it's insanely helpful. There's also the one about his testicles. And I, and I think that <laughs> you haven't heard that. No. That's true. I, my swing coach growing up used to tell me that, that he would, I don't, and I'm going to butcher it of, of like what it actually was, but he would have a swing thought of rotation and it kind of his, his, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this on the podcast. <laughs> good thing. Good thing. New clubs are sponsored this episode, but his right <laughs> testicle would like clear, clear to the left or something. Dead serious. <laughs> I'll have to reread five lessons. I must overlook that one. 
I'm sure we have a di- is there a diagram of that one too in there? That, that's I, the only reason I believe this, guys, and this is true. My wife, uh, who was uh, quite a good golfer, yeah, good leap. Where my wife, with this? <laughs> she was the MVP of her high school golf team. Guess who she learned the golf swing from? Uh, a guy named Frank Wharton, who uh, is friends with this gentleman that told me this. They were they were pals, and. Uh, and, and he confirmed that. And so Frank Wharton was a childhood, uh, grew up at Ben Hogan's club in Dallas and, or Fort Worth. And he, uh, he learned everything from Ben. So I believe it. I think, <laughs> I think it's real. Oh. <laughs> um, I don't know. Ahead, professor, get us back on track. Yeah, I'm going to get us back on track and switch up gears a little bit. Uh, Sean, this is on this, and I'm being earnest here. This is one of the hardest podcasts to, to plan for. Um, because one of the things I most appreciate about you and why I enjoy talking with you through text or any, you know, the rare times we do get to meet up when you're not dodging me down in Jacksonville is how thoughtful you are on any topic, golf, life. It really doesn't matter. Like if you're thinking about it, like you've always struck me as someone that thinks about it, right? Whatever it is, like you're going to think about it and break things into its parts and go deep. So that was all, as I say, it was really hard to plan for this podcast because it's like, oh, we have 27 topics we could dive into. Some would say think too much. Honestly, going back to like, why was I into the golf swing? I think it was just like excessive thinking. Like I enjoyed, I mean, because when you're playing golf, it's about thinking less, right? But overanalyzing the golf swing is probably, overanalyzing is probably a theme of my life. Uh, It's a definitely a powerful thing in some spheres and not so much in others, including golf. Um, But I think that's also why I kind of am so interested in the golf swing because you can really just dive into it, um, but it doesn't work out so well for playing golf. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. Uh, so I want to dive into golf media a little bit, right? That's the world you live in, and we talk all the time about that, at least in text, right? About whatever's going on, if it's the, the nature of the golf media or whatever. I want to start, though, let's start here. If you, me, you and I have talked about like long form articles and how, you know, that's, that's disappeared from media in general, right? That's not just golf media. That's just media in general, that long form articles and outlets for that don't exist. If you had, if you had to write a long form article right now, what would be the one that you would want to write? And let's take golf swing off of that, off the table, since we just talked about it. Cause I think you might go there and I, and I'm going to, I'm just going to tease the audience that he's teased a book to me in the past that he would love to write a book on the golf swing. So we're going to expect that in the next 20 years that you, well, we're going to have the book by Sean Martin. So it was kind of already not written. Golf there, swing. I do have to shout out. Go. There's a great book called Golf's Holy War by Brett Strigalis. Yeah, Brett. It mm-hmm. came out in right in the middle of the pandemic, unfortunately, for yeah. his sales, I think. Um, but it is a great kind of look at the the two sides of golf, right? The completely objective, you know, track man um, TPI type world versus the completely, uh, subjective, like, so it's basically like high tech golf versus golf in the kingdom. And he does a great job of kind of exploring the history of both. Um, so I do, I do want to mention that book to find that. It's a great book. It is. It was one of my favorites, man. I read a lot of books during the pandemic, but that, that one, Right, you could tell just so well researched, and he was on the show too talking about it. Yeah, that's a good one to pick up. So you're rewriting that book? Is that what you're doing? No, Sean? I do. I would love to kind of like what Keith Cutton did with golf course architecture. I think I would love to um, write a book on the history of the swing because I think you can kind of draw a thread. I think these things all do sort of connect, um, like we talked about earlier with like Morrison to Picard to Hogan to Grout to then like. Um, I think there is something there, but I mean. 
I also, it's very limited audience, I think. And so I do have three young kids and it's a matter of wise use of time. <laughs> yeah, that's why we're giving you a 20 year window. So it could be like nearing retirement. Like this is my passion project. And because we, we all want to hear that. So, all right, let's, let's dive into golf media a little bit. Like give us the Sean Martin state of golf media, where we're at, um, sort of paint a picture of like what you see where golf media is at and what they're struggling with. And let's start there. I mean, I think as a consumer of golf media, I think it's in a good spot. I mean, I think there's a lot of <clears throat> great independent, you know, no laying up Friday, et cetera. I, as a consumer, like I really enjoy those. And I think they do a great job of, of bringing a new voice to things. Um, you know, Andy, what he's done with architecture in general and just elevating it in our conversation and making it a part of the discourse again, I think has been huge for the game. I think so many more people are more intelligent intelligent about architecture. And a lot of that is because of Andy. Um, and I think you see that even on the broadcast and some of the content that like we produce at pjtour.com is because there's such an elevated interest in architecture. And that definitely is a, a, a lot is due to Andy. And then, you know, I think Nolang Up, just with um, long form podcasts with players and just the access that they get, I think is huge. Um, I think for your like mainstream media, um, it's pretty similar challenges. I think you see in the media environment in general, which thankfully it's only about golf. It's always kind of scary when like you think about the same challenges being in like political coverage, but um, good journalism is really expensive to produce and it's hard to monetize. And actually you listen to, so Alan Shipnuck uh, just went on, uh, Richard Deitch's podcast. Richard was the longtime media writer for Sports Illustrated and now is the media writer for The Athletic. And he had Alan on and Alan is a co-founder of Fire Pit Collective. And um, I think anyone on golf Twitter has seen, you know, they had layoffs recently and they've really had to, I think, shrink their operation. And part of that was because they had these grand aspirations that, you know, so much of online golf media is clickbait, if you will, or just trying to drive traffic and short hitting articles you know, maybe lacking depth, especially the depth that like an Alan Shipnuck or Michael Bamberger can provide. And they thought that advertisers would flock to being associated with this content. But when they went out to the marketplace to try to sell it, they got met with, well, what's your traffic? You know, how many people are seeing this? Um, how many subscribers do you have? Et cetera, et cetera, for your podcast. And that's kind of where they ran into some financial difficulties. And I think um, when I started at Golf Week, you know, we were... I think 40 something issues a year. And I think now they're down to four. And a large part of that is because um, advertising has moved from print to the internet. You know, I mean, even when I started reading Golf Week in high school, it was newspaper size, um, I think 11 by 17. And you had, you know, advertisements for like Founders Club and Daiwa and Zevo and Snake Eyes and just like all these golf companies. Um, some before Tiger and then some obviously after the Tiger boom, but that was because like Golf Week print magazine was the place to advertise. And in magazine publishing, your the size of your magazine is a ratio with how many ads you have. So you want to have like, let's say 75% copy, 25% ads. So if you sell 20 pages of ads, you want to have, gosh, now I'm blanking on numbers. Um, you want to have three times as many pages of copy. So 60 pages, let's say 80 page magazine, which probably doesn't exist, but just for an example. Um, and all that mattered is the number of subscribers and that you had enough ads to fill the pages. And so what you wrote was really just kind of the highest quality 
stories you thought you could tell. You know, you, you didn't know how many people read the story on page 15 versus the story on page 30. So it wasn't like, oh man, people are flocking to page 15. We need to replicate that model more and more. But um, now with the internet, you know, A, so print or so advertising has flocked to the internet instead of print. So magazines are in a tough spot. Um, they have fewer ads to fill their pages. And then when you get to the internet, and this is kind of the danger of analytics anywhere is, you know, I can look and see exactly how many people read every article on our website every day. And so we know what's most popular. And so you you can become very, you can become optimized from a strategy standpoint of like, hey, we know what's going to work, right? So let's run out the same five topics over and over again, just generate traffic. It's kind of like I'm a big baseball guy. And a part of that was because of analytics and baseball. I read Moneyball. And again, being a contrarian, I was like, yeah, all these new people sticking it to conventional wisdom with their data. This is so cool. And I I mean, a lot of the stuff, I don't watch much baseball. A lot of the stuff I consume is um, baseball stats type stuff because I find it really interesting. But baseball got formulaic, right? The fewer stolen bases, um, fewer singles, more home runs, more velocity um, from pitchers, which meant less contact. And it just got formulaic and predictable. Um, it got boiled down to what they call the three true outcomes of either a strikeout, a walk, or a home run. And it got less exciting. And they've had to make rule changes to counteract that and try to bring back some of the beauty of the game. And so same thing in media, since we have the data of what works, it can get sort of predictable. And I, I do like, I think, not to toot our own horn at pjtour.com, but I think because a lot of our strategies to promote our players you know, we still traffic matters. We still take it into consideration with what we do. But a big priority of ours, too, is to tell the stories of our players. So we also will write stories about players that we know aren't, it's not going to get a ton of traffic, but it fulfills another mission. It fulfills a storytelling mission. And storytelling is a lot, a word we use a lot internally. Um, we have meetings about storytelling because we want to tell the stories about our tournaments, our courses, our players. And I think other places where you have pressure to meet traffic goals, like, look, we just got to run out the same playbook. We know it works. The numbers prove it. We got to show these numbers at the end of the quarter. You know, humans are incentive driven. And if your job is to hit a certain traffic number, then you've got to do what you know is going to hit that number. And that's the one thing I do like is that, you know, we're a little bit divorced from that, but it definitely has its effect on media for sure. I like the the term storytelling, Sean, and I, I definitely see that in, you know, I, as a consumer of a lot of golf media, I find myself, I get stuck in like that repetitive kind of punchy stuff. And, and, and Twitter's obviously designed for that is you, you kind of, you're looking for quicker hits and the dopamine fix. And, and uh, I just try to stop myself when I can and, and try to find a good long form article and, and really just spend time with it. And that's just, it's it's like it's like the difference between having a healthy meal and and you know eating ice cream for dinner. Like it, I just feel better. I feel like I learned something about somebody. I feel like I went to a, de- a depth with the the subject. So I was just curious what uh, long form articles. You know, I know they take more patience and time. Like which what are you working on? Where are some that you enjoy writing? Um, so one I have coming for the U.S. Open is on Max Homa and kind of his L.A. roots because the course he grew up at, Vista Valencia, is pretty similar to Westlake. It's like a par 61, 5,000 yards, and honestly, a pretty similar vibe to Westlake, I think, where 
you know, one of the great things, there was a, a culture of like people of different ages, you know, mixing it up and playing against each other. And when you have a 5,000 yard golf course, like you can do that. Cause, um, we had a kid that played with us who was like five years younger, let's say, uh, his name was Nick Geyer. He played at New Mexico. Now he works for Scotty Cameron. Um, and he could hang with us cause he was really good with a seven wood and he could hit driver seven wood and, you know, hang with us at a golf course that length. And, and Vista Valencia was pretty similar. Like Jason Gore grew up there also. And the phrase he used, uh, was it was shitty enough to be good in that you got enough bad lies where you had to, you know, manufacture some shots and, and really work on, you know, an imperfect lie is going to test you a lot more than let's say a perfect lie. And you just had good games, um, between, you know, a player like Jason Gore or mini tour players and college players and juniors and, so I'm really excited about that one. I think I'm going to go out there later this month to take a look at it because I actually never played it. It was probably 30 minutes away, 45 minutes away, but I mean, it wasn't exactly worth the trip. Um, so that one's one I'm definitely looking forward to. Um, I'm just blanking on, on other stuff. I wanted to do something with Lee Trevino. I don't know if we're going to have it. It's going to work out scheduling wise, but I've just been reading a lot on Lee. I feel like you know, you saw Lee Trevino in the Netflix doc um, telling stories with Tiger and Jack and Rory, and you saw him, there was that clip at the father-son two years ago, maybe, where he's talking golf swing about um, with Tiger and Charlie, and there's just like this enduring appeal to Lee Trevino. Um, I think part of it is he's just one of the game's great storytellers. Part of it is like his story of his upbringing and um, growing up literally dirt poor, like dirt floor house and teaching himself the game. And I mean, he's kind of the original tin cup. There's even a story in there about how he used to play guys with a Pepsi bottle. Like he would, it was a glass bottle, so he would tape it up so it wouldn't break, but he would hit the ball with like a, I think it was actually a Dr. Pepper bottle. Um, but he would hit balls and bet guys hitting the Dr. Pepper bottle against them playing with their golf ball. Um, but there's also not a ton on Lee Trevino. Like the last biography is, I think it was from the early 80s. Uh Thrift Books is one of my favorite sites because you can find all kinds of old golf books there. Mm -hmm. um, but there is, I think, an enduring appeal of, of Lee Trevino, and I was hoping, to, and we're going to the Oak Hill for the PGA, which is where he won his first major, the 68 US Open, which was also his first uh, PGA Tour title, which is pretty incredible. I'd love to read that one. One uh, enduring memory of Lee Trevino in uh, where we grew up, Akron, Ohio. They'd come through, they'd do clinics, and he was talking about you know, out on the range, a bunch of kids sitting around, some adults. But he's talking about spin. And uh, I think one of the kids that was probably a good junior golfer was like, you know, I, I tend to spin my wedges so much, Lee. Like, uh, how do you how do you control the spin? And and this is like 2001 around there, maybe. And he just looked at the kid, took his wedge, made a gi giant divot. He goes, you fill it with dirt. And then he hit a ball. And he's like, you see how that released there? Because I had dirt in my grooves. I was like, I was like that, that is such a uh, an artistic, you know, uh, artisan approach to doing it. And um, I, I still think about that sometimes when I'm on the course. I was like, yeah, if there's dirt in the club and I need it, it's a back pin. I don't want it to suck back. Just let it, let it stay there. Man, I remember we went to a Champions Tour event at Wilshire Country Club before it was renovated. And I just remember seeing this ball fly by like head high. And I'm like, man, who just scold a shot? And then you watch it hit the green, like it hits once and checks. And you look back and it's like, and it's Lee Trevino. And you're like, like, how do you hit a wedge that low? I mean, it was, you, I didn't have, you didn't have to lift your head to see the ball go by. It was, it was wild. Yeah, that, that's an, that is a character that needs to be, that's an old untold story we need to hear more about. 
Well, he's so timely right now too, in terms of the debate around technology and the ball and the clubs, right? Like, I think if we had the point, like I'm definitely in that camp of like, I would like to roll back um, the tech somehow, but he's one of the players I'd point to of why, like that, the way he played the game and what he could do with a golf ball and what, by necessity in terms of the equipment that was there, if you could do that, like you had an advantage, you had a leg up on the, on the competition if you knew how to actually manipulate the club and the ball to do what you wanted it to do. Um, yeah, you had just, he was, well, it's crazy. any videos of him watching him play golf. Sometimes. It's crazy too. You look at him and I mean, you're talking about someone with no instruction, you know, wasn't trying to emulate anyone's golf swing. You know, I mean, Arnold Palmer, I mean, his dad was a, a superintendent and club pro and had some insight. Jack Nicholas, obviously heavily instructed by Jack Grout, though I don't think, you know, they weren't getting too deep into it, but he had a teacher by his side his whole career. And then you have like Lee Trevino growing up dirt poor, just, I mean, nobody would teach what he did, you know, stance wide open, super laid off, it seemed, but then would shallow it so well, but then hit it, you know, super low. And um, instruction is great. I think it may reminds us that golf is still a game and also still an athletic pursuit. There's an athletic aspect to, it. you know, I think we can try to control it. And I think this is what I like about the golf swing too, is like, there's this myth, I think that if we master like the fundamentals, we can control the game because the ball is just sitting there, right? You're not reacting to anything. So there's like this illusion of control, which we all know it's not really there, but I think we still are tempted to believe that we can have full control of, of the golf swing and, and of our ball. Um, but it's still just an athletic pursuit. And so much of it is just, you know, like you would see Tiger saving shots or, or saving his swing when he gets stuck and flipping it, but still producing a good shot. Like so much of it is responding to changes in conditions and responding to when your swing is imperfect and just navigating the ball around. And um, it's such an interesting, I think, kind of combination of the two of like, you need to master your fundamentals, you know, build your swing, but also it is a totally random game and it is still an athletic pursuit that still takes athleticism and hand-eye coordination. I'm gonna, I want to combine two of your, your thoughts today, Sean, for uh, uh, a question about, you know, we've talked a lot about, I can tell your sensibilities on the, the, these old school guys and, and a bit more before technology where it was, uh, an artisanal approach to the game, perhaps, and they're just figuring it out in the dirt. And uh, and then you mentioned baseball going the way of of stats and the predictability of it. And do you think golf is? I don't let me put thoughts in your head or, or words in your mouth. Is are we doing the right things at the highest level to make sure that golf doesn't go the way of baseball? Because I, I agree with everything you said about kind of the, the older guys and, and the approach to the game. I, I think that's what makes it fun. I think that's why I love watching Jordan Spieth play. Like, it's not predictable. And they they still play with a bit of that art and not just the science. Yeah, and I think, and Scotty Scheffler too, I think you see him as a guy, old school guy that works the ball a lot. Um, I do wonder, you know, we have all this new information that we've learned of, you know, I think the advantage of distance has really been emphasized over the past few years, especially after what Bryson did at Wingfoot. And so I think that, you know, rolling back the golf ball or making other changes would have an effect, but I think it, I don't think we're ever, the toothpaste is out of the tube, not just like the golf ball has gotten to a certain distance, but also like we know so much more. So even whatever, you know, new rules come out as far as clubs and equipment and balls, et cetera, like guys are still going to pursue distance um within reason now <clears throat> if you have a ball let's say that spins more 
or mishits are more penalized, then yeah, there is a and more of an emphasis on, let's say, hitting at the center of the face, then maybe guys don't go as all out at it as they are right now. But um, I just think the it's a different game than it was 20, 30 years ago because of the information we have now and, and how people have decided is the best way to play the game. So I think that even if we change, even if we rolled back to the equipment from the 90s, I think the game would still be played much differently than it was in the 90s. Yeah, I definitely think, you know, having or te- from the teaching of strategy and what I do there, like uh, I have a hard time envisioning equipment that would make changing the optimal strategy that significant, right? In terms of like the examples I think of, yeah, in terms of distance, certainly we can change equipment so you have more variance in the dispersion and that will change like the sense of does a going for 195 ball speed make any sense or sorry let's go swing speed because the ball will change the, but let's go 120 swing speed like being your cruising swing speed could you actually deliver a consistent blow with could change that but in terms of like back left pin you're a predominant fade player like oh yeah you should try to work it in there and hit that 20 yard draw in there like i i have a hard time envisioning equipment that would then say that's the answer versus like no stick to your stock fade you know, it's a seven iron back left. All right, you want to play six paces to the right because that deep bunker, uh, I do have a hard time thinking of like equipment that would change up that equation. That's another pod. Uh, <laughs> I know, I think we're going to, I think we're going to have to, I mean, as hard as it is a schedule, Sean. So I know, six, I know. Six we got him. It's true. It's true. Let's make go, him really I'm uncomfortable not, I'm not how long we can guy. go. I, that's a different guest. Uh, yeah. I, I have less of a dog in the fight, partly just because it's above my pay grade, partly because um, I just kind of stay out of it and just I'm more of an interested observer from the sideline. So definitely a different guest for the rollback debate. Well, that's why we're going to bring you in with maybe another. Maybe we'll get Andy on or something like that. And you can be the guy that comes in with the that sort of sensible perspective on everything. Uh, yes, yes. The uh, uh, I I got a question on the the flux of the tour and the structure of events. Is your job harder because of all this? It's different. I think the first quarter was a lot. It was a lot of really good stuff, but it was a lot. You had Netflix, um, which we did a lot of stuff around. You had the designated events. You just had the general excitement around the first quarter of the year and the West Coast events, especially leading up into the Players Championship. Um, has it changed it? I don't think so i i think we always have a lot of stories that we want to tell and i mean i think honda was a perfect example right it was not a designated event but you know between kevin's dog chris kirk coming out on top with you know mini tour legend eric cole like it was such a great story and i think i mean that's kind of this is going to sound cheesy but like the cool thing about the pga tour and golf in general is like lives change every week and it's not even necessarily the winner like if john rom wins this week at the heritage like his life's not really going to change. He's already number one in the world. He's already got the master's title. He's already got two majors. Um, it's another line in the resume, but there could be a guy that finishes, let's say third and, you know, has made enough to lock up his card for the year or something. So, um, I think there's still an emphasis. There's still lives changing every week. There's just so many different things people are playing for. Like you've got a guy like John Rahm who's building his hall of fame resume. And then you had, Chris Kirk with his comeback and Eric Cole, like just trying to keep his card and stay on tour after years on the mini tour. So I don't think so. I think we're always still trying to find, you know, great stories, you know, wherever we can. And and luckily there's still plenty of them. 
Yeah, I, I think one thing that I didn't anticipate as a again a huge fan of of pro golf was the the those off weeks that aren't designated uh, uh, events, and they. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the golf weekdays, right? Open into the back page, see what's going on. So I feel like the the golf, you know, degenerates and people that are are really deep in and love following the Corn Ferry Tour, that we kind of won out a little bit in this structure in a way that I wasn't anticipating, which is those off weeks are actually kind of appealing because I am interested in the underdog story. I am interested in the Cole versus Kirk. And and not that like my buddies who aren't as deeply into golf are are going to be following around. They want to see Rom. They want to see Spieth. And and uh, yeah, it's been it's been like a, a pleasant surprise this first quarter of of 2023. Well, and I think you're going to have more of what we like of like the relegation and promotion, kind of the back and forth of you know when guys don't play well, they're going to move down, maybe out of those designated events. Guys play well there and move up into them. And so like the late summer events here after the Open Championship, I think you'll have. Um, some bigger names playing because now the FedEx Cup playoffs are only top 70 and not top 125. And then top 50 is huge for next year. So if you're, um, I think Justin Thomas is currently outside the top 50. And so you'll have guys playing for that top 50 status to get into the elevated events for next year. And then in the fall, you'll have kind of your traditional jockeying for tour cards, um, which the sickos like us will enjoy. And, you know, even... You look at, you know, there's no more Corn Ferry Tour finals as they've been for the last 10 years where, you know, a guy finishes 127th, let's say, on the FedEx Cup points list. He can go down to the Corn Ferry Tour finals. There's 25 cards available. Like, that doesn't exist anymore. Now there's 30 cards available from the Corn Ferry Tour, but that's for the season-long points. And so really, that guy, especially that finishes like 151st in the FedEx Cup, if he doesn't have like past champion status or he didn't win the year before... Like his only recourse to get a card back is the five cards available at Q School. So, you know, number 151, let's say, or number 170, like before he had a chance to play for one of 25 cards. Now he's playing for one of five cards. And Mm. so that makes life a lot harder for him. And so there's just higher stakes. And I think there's higher stakes like throughout the season of, you know, the events, but next year, the events between the designated events, like guys are going to play well and be playing to move up into the next two designated events and just, I don't know, a lot of the, there's going to be a lot of like game within the game type stuff, which I think, again, like the sickos um, and the hardcores enjoy and just a lot more stuff to follow of like, man, this guy's T4 here is going to matter. Like he's not going to win, but this putt on 18 is going to matter for this other stuff and just like more putts of consequence, more shots of consequence. Um, and I think that stuff is going to be cool. I love that. Uh, just just one tiny uh, recommendation. I love the meritocracy that is the PGA Tour and guys dropping them. That's awesome. I think you guys should throw in a little bit like survival around the fire pit. Like someone just gets voted to be relegated like, every week. Like survival, like, just, like they're dead? No, no, not not survival. <laughs> Survivor like the show, like vote them off the island kind of deal. Like let a little peer review. You know, everybody says, you know, that guy just, he kind of, pushes his way through the food line and, and you know, let's vote him out of next week. But isn't that the, op- that's the opposite of meritocracy. That's like a popularity contest. I know, but that's, I just think the drama, you guys can get a little taste of it along with all the meritocracy. They got to play their way back on. I think it would, it would help. Just, just a suggestion. You sound like you've been talking to the full swing guys and now you're just trying to generate like <laughs> yeah. the F1 drama, right? Like this is just ramp up the drama. So exactly. TV. You nailed it, Kevin. Too much, too much drive to survive. All right, last question for you, Sean. We've had you for a while. Um, I know you're a busy man, so we want to let you go. But you love the underdog story. Give us 
give us two to three names who we should watch out for on sort of PGA Tour, maybe Corn Ferry, you grab from wherever that maybe names people haven't heard of. You know, who should we be? Who's trending and who's a good story to follow the rest of the year that we should root for? Gosh, are you angling for a Davis Thompson shout out here? <laughs> no, we already got that. He doesn't need any more. He's 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 a big name these days. Um, so we don't we don't he doesn't need any of our support anymore. He's he's off and running. So he give is. us somebody else. Um, which for background, that's been a long-standing uh, source of text between uh, Kevin and myself. Yeah, Sean when... refuses to cover him. Just refuses. <laughs> I was not at the American Express, but uh, I've definitely tweeted a lot about him. Uh, I mean, I think this is a great opportunity. Can I go into the college game? And I mean, maybe everyone's heard their Gar- Gordon Sargent takes for long enough, but I know he didn't play well at the Masters, and which honestly my theory is I think he played the first hole so well on Thursday that it kind of spooked him. Like, you know, when you have a really good warm up and you play really well on the first hole, you're like, oh, today's my day. This is going to be good. And then it all falls apart because all of a sudden you put pressure on him, on yourself. I mean, the first hole at Augusta, he hit it. He had 85 yards left. I've never seen anyone that far up. Back pin, fires at it. Like, long is dead. Uh, lands like hole high, skips past. You're like, oh my gosh, he's so hosed. Spins it back to like five feet, makes the putt, makes birdie. And then dumps a chip in the bunker in the next hole, blades a chip the next hole after that. But I think, I mean, Gordon, one player texted uh, a media friend and was like, he's the best amateur I've ever played with. And I mean, I know you have a lot of guys that come out with like the, man, he's the best since this and et cetera, et cetera. But you really have like, people were a little hesitant to go on the record because some of the claims are like so, so audacious, but it's like, man, he is the best. Brentley Romine called him the best college player since Rom. Um, you have others that are like, he's the best I've ever seen in college. Like, I think it's post tiger we're talking, but everyone says he's really, really good. Um, after the masters, he won his next start by eight shots. He's won two events now by seven or more shots this season. Um, you know, we talk about variance and, uh, in his last 16 college starts, this was entering secs where he's taking on the dogs for Kevin's, um, awareness, uh, his worst start in those 16 starts is seventh. So like his. I mean, he's clearly, I mean, Ludwig Aberg's up there as well. It's actually a really fun time in college golf with Ludwig Aberg and Michael Thorbjornsson, um, some really high caliber players um, in college golf right now. But people rave about Sargent, obviously the ball speed, but also has good touch, um, good putting. So he's one that I, I'm excited. I mean, I'm not going to say he's going to do whatever. He's going to win this or win that or win this many events, but exciting to see what he does, especially because he could get that PGA Tour U accelerated Mm-hmm. by really the end of the season or end of the year where he's going to be guaranteed a PJ Tour card whenever he turns pro. He can defer that for as long as he wants. Um, he can stay in school four years if he wants or stay for a third year. But when he turns pro, then he would have a Tour card. So that's going to be kind of cool to watch. And really then Ludwig Aberg, I mean, he's probably got the top spot in PJ Tour U wrapped up. Um, anyone who listens to this and also listens to No Laying Up, which is probably a pretty high crossover, has heard Tron touting Ludwig for a long time. But... Um, you know, did really well at the Arnold Palmer Invitational, which is not an easy golf course at Bay Hill. Um, and it's going to be, I mean, really, it's something we've clamored for for a long time of like a college kid being able to come out and turn pro and, and get his tour card right away and start on tour. And like now we have that. So it's going to be really excited to see um, how those guys do. You know, there's going to be some pressure on him probably as kind of that first test case or that trailblazer. But I just, I mean, as a guy who loves college golf and loves amateur golf, I'm really excited to see how those guys do. Um, because we've wanted it for so long and now it's finally here. 
Thanks for those. I just uh, opened my uh, sports betting website of choice, and uh, I'll send you nasty messages if none of those pans. So I got some of those, and actually, uh, the highest are friends at Golf Bet on the PGA Tour side. Uh, a report they received said the most, um, what is it? Most action on a bet or most handle? I think is the term. I'm not a, a gambling guy myself, um, but was on Gordon Sargent for low amateur. And I did have in my mentions was a fair amount of like, thanks for, you know, costing me money. You know, you don't know anything. So uh, one, one was like condolences to my fellow friends who were duped by the quote unquote experts into putting an amateur on their DFS lineup. And just so. Yeah. Since you're the one that hit the submit button for them, right? You're the one that, that did that. Right. This is, this is why I keep, yeah, I keep money out of my matches for this reason. People just change, man. Things change. Like, I play fantasy for fun and points, and and I love it, but I'm not sending Rob Bolton and, you know, messages about when... Oh, send Rob Bolton all your all your feedback, even if it didn't cost any money. <laughs> I, he will I, respond as well. T- tell Rob I ride true with Rob. I've been riding with him, man, for like 20... It feels like 20 years. I don't so know how you, long... You go back to the Rotowire days. Yes. yes oh, so you're exactly. an original... Yeah. You're a yeah. long, but time. it's always been fantasy. I mean, I don't gamble. I just, I just, I, I go with them. He pays attention. Gents, uh, Sean, thanks so much for being with us, man. This was really fun. Uh, a, a treat for, for both the professor and I. I, I feel a lot smarter today being in both of your company. Well, thank you. I'm sure someone's going to get a hold of this and be like, this guy's a moron, doesn't know what he's talking about. So I look forward to that as well. Cause I'll learn something from them, but, uh, it was definitely a pleasure. Professor, tremendous booking there with Mr. Martin. Thank you. One of the best minds in golf. I, I tell us everyone because you know people get to hear the very little from him in the sense of yeah, he has a really good Twitter presence, but it's all like PGA Tour stats stuff, right? He doesn't like chime in, just doesn't engage in the way maybe we engage. It just like playing like as a playground. It's like no, this is you know PGA Tour data and in stories, and then um, you know he's on a couple of podcasts, but. I always tell everyone, like, one of the best minds out there thinks deeply on everything and any any topic related to golf or life, like, you'll have a great conversation with them if you're ever around them, so. Yeah, he, op- he opened my eyes uh, a bit to to him as, uh, like you said, a thoughtful, and I know you've told me that for a long time, but it was really cool to have that conversation with him and, um, and see it in action because it's like, and even you look at how I kind of started the show with like the stats side of Sean. I always feel like that's what kind of comes forward first in a lot of stuff. Like he he has the analysis that accompanies what he's writing about, right? And he's big on stats, and that's kind of maybe how I, I remembered him. But when you talk to him and you go a little deeper into his articles, you're like, no, this guy's a, a storyteller, and he's he's digging deep into not just the surface level stuff and. It's multifaceted. You know, he cares about the swing. He cares about architecture. He cares about the courses that they play on. He cares about the strategy that they employ. He cares about who their coaches are. Like, it's, it was really a guy that loves golf. (laughs) You know, is another way to put it in in all aspects of the game. Yeah. Authenticity is a word you use a lot. And he's just authentic. That's what you're going to get when you're talking with him. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So one of the things that really stood out to me, thinking, you know, reflecting on the conversation with him, when he got into the, the media topic and how driven it can be by analytics. Uh, and the one thing that popped into my brain that I would love to bring up, but the, this wasn't the, the, the best pod for it, was like, what is the 
purpose. So like an, the purpose of whatever you're doing. In, in this case, it's like, okay, he was pushing back on like, well, if you just look at analytics, it tells you to do this, but that's not necessarily going to improve the quality of your product, right? It might up your revenue, up your profits, but what are you sacrificing in that? And I think that that is entirely relevant to the game of golf and country clubs um, uh, specifically. Because you think about like, my mind always goes to growth isn't always good. Like growth for growth's sake, even if it's profit driven, like, okay, you're growing profits. I don't always consider that to be a good thing. And I'll, I'll speak to this specific on country clubs. Like just because you're growing membership numbers and getting more money, that's not going to make your country club better. Like, I think the question always comes down to what are you committed to in whatever you're doing? Um, are you committed to quality? Are you committed to soul? Do you have a mission? And, and what's your commitment to that? And so judging growth against that that benchmark is always what you should be doing. My comparison is always like the United States Postal Service. Everybody's like, oh, it should be, you know, it's terrible business. Well, it's not meant to be a business. Like it is a social service. And if it was meant to be a business, guess what? Everybody in a rural area would be stranded. Look how cable, like cable internet, right? Like it's not meant to be that. Country clubs don't have to be meant to grow and grow and make more money and build the next things. It's okay to have a 300 person membership that's low revenue if it accomplishes the mission and the ethos that you want. Like that is okay. And you can just stay right there. Right. And I know we battle this with the new club all the time, just thinking like, okay, how do you balance growth and membership growth versus why new club was started at the beginning? So just his comment about media yeah, and that tension just reminded me that that's always a tension of a business. Like growth for growth's sake often leads you in bad places. If you're just chasing more profit, more numbers, you're probably going to lose what made you great or the mission you started out with to be, or you started to, to begin with. Yeah, that, and I, I did the media landscape. That was one of my questions. I, I just imagine his job is harder because of the the uh, pressure on revenue with increased purchase uh, purses and the just just the dollars go up, and that means the you know the revenue needs to as well. And and uh, but I thought it was really insightful answer to that question that you know they still talk all the time about storytelling what they gotta achieve and i think um there's i one thing that i always kind of with with media in general i think a lot of us that we have so much access now to uh, uh independent media and we always want to kind of poo-poo the the establishment right but i think like in everything it, not everyone's an idiot is something that a former mentor of mine told me. And and that's like kind of how I feel about the big media. Like these people are very accomplished. Like they, they got to golf digest, they got to golf weekly. Like they're Sean Martins of the world. And you got to like, I don't, you don't have to love it. Like, you know, obviously, you know, go with a new brand of, of independent media. And that is, I, that's probably the majority of what I consume. But I just, I, I feel myself as I get older, like having so much more respect for the the internal people of, you know, the big players, the, the PGA Tours, the Golf Digest, the Golf Week in golf media. And, uh, and yeah, it doesn't mean that they don't kind of, you know, fall victim to too big type decisions, right? They definitely will. But uh, there are smart people inside of there doing good work. So don't just like put a sticker on them and say, that's it. You know, I'm not done listening to this outlet. So, yeah. Yeah, we can overlook a lot of the good an outlet does because when an outlet becomes big, they do so many things, it's easy to narrow in on the things we don't like that they're doing and say, oh, look at this big, whatever it is. It could be in politics. It could be in media. Like, oh, look at this terrible. They're just terrible. They're selling out when they still probably have entities doing really good work you love in there. It's just also 
this yeah. is going on. And that's, you know, Twitter's in your face. Like, like I've learned to just mute or like unfollow those, those genres that don't interest me and only focus in on those areas like Sean Martin's work, right? Like I focus in on that and that gives me tons of enjoyment and always reminds me, no, there's tons of good work being done by big media outlets. Um, you just have to like get to get rid of the noise that you don't like and make sure to focus on the stuff you do like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great guess. I think we should have more people from the golf media space. Have I think we should have more people on from the golf media space on the show, but get them talking about other things because to learn about him being such a swing geek, like that, that's a tough thing to get to, right? Because if we would have kind of hammered him on the PGA tour, I feel like, uh, that we wouldn't have been as interesting to me, at least, you know, personally. Um, I can read his articles on the PGA Tour. I can go to other, you know, uh, the the fantasy uh, uh, podcasts and, and talk about, you know, what players are looking good. I can't I, talk about, you know, Sean Martin's inspiration for the golf swing and the the way that he studied it. I, I just found that really interesting. Yeah, a true untold story. If you there will. you go. Back to the tag. We haven't lost it yet. Uh our new sponsor of this here podcast. Thank you to New Club Golf Society for bringing us this absolutely tremendous episode. Uh, Kevin, it's May. The first outdoor Chicago competition is occurring at our community gym on the north side of Chicago. Canal Shores, the hangout is at the end of this month. I am always looking forward to that because that's kind of like, even though we have a kickoff back in April and we got parties and stuff like up north, it doesn't really get going until May, June when the weather's, you know, predictably okay. And uh, and man, we get started at Canal Shores. So anybody that's listening, we still have memberships for 2023 available. And it's a 12 month from whenever you sign up or whenever you apply and get accepted. Um, just people that love the game of golf, playing at cool, fun places and, and enjoying this game. Well, it'll be extra buzz and anticipation this year too with the Canal Shores um, news, you know, breaking in terms of them. Having the renovation and moving forward. I think we broke it on this podcast. Rewind back a couple episodes ago and you'll see a couple, multiple episodes. Uh, Yeah, there'll be a little extra excitement around that. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, We'll be back next week. Enjoy the rest of your week.